So massive welcome to KXC. We're continuing a teaching series, Truth and Life. What does the Bible have to do with life today? This has been the journey to date. We've looked at the reader. What do we bring to the text as we begin to open up the scriptures? We've looked at the scriptures themselves. Biblos, the word meaning library. It's a library, 66 books written by many different authors over hundreds of years of time. We've looked at the story. What's the overarching narrative of the scripture? Last week, John looked at the word. Is the Bible authoritative? And today, we're going to look at the lamp. How does the Bible guide our decision making? Um, And I want to read a few texts before I launch in. So here's text number one, 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture, not some of scripture, our favorite bits. All scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God. You know, inspired by writers, poets, prophets, etc. But ultimately inspired by God himself. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This book is unbelievably useful when it comes to righteous living. Text number two then, Psalm 119. This is the psalmist declaring, oh, how I love your law. In other words, your scriptures. How I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Final one then, Hebrews chapter 4. The writer of Hebrews says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For the word of God is alive and it is active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I want you to picture this scenario. Every time you open your scriptures, let's just picture it's a Monday morning at 7 a.m. You're up bright and early. You're in your PJs. You've just brewed yourself a lovely coffee and you open up the scriptures. What you have in front of you is the word of God. And you have the Spirit of God in that moment hovering over the pages. Now, if you've read this story, you know how the Bible opens up in Genesis 1, right? You've got the Word of God and the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And when God speaks and he says, let there be light, there's an explosion of light and there's an explosion of life. Every time we open up the scriptures, we have the same two ingredients. We have the word of God. We have the spirit of God hovering over this encounter. You can guarantee there'll be an explosion of light and there will be an explosion of life. That's why the writer to the Hebrew says today, don't leave it to tomorrow. Don't leave it until January and you begin a new reading plan. Like today, like when you open up the scriptures, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Like do not shut down. Because if you allow these words to go through to the innermost part of who you are, these words, they're living, they are active. They'll cut through all the obstacles. They'll go to the deepest part of who you are. And when these seeds are planted in that deep place, there will be an explosion of light and an explosion of life. Do you want that? Like that is what's on offer when we open up the scriptures. Whenever the scriptures are proclaimed, whenever the scriptures are read, you can guarantee that God will speak. 
Um, I love the story. Pete Gregg tells this story. He once took one of his non-Christian mates to church, and I'm sure many of you will, will know this scenario. When you're at church, you haven't brought any mates, but the worship was like just now, like electric, a sense of energy and passion in the room. And then the woman or the guy gets up to preach, and they're on fire. They're funny. They're engaging. They're insightful. It's totally, totally profound. And then there's a prayer ministry time where there's a sense of God's presence. And you leave like pumped up thinking, I wish my friend had come to church. That's given me courage. Next Sunday, they're coming. I don't care how they're doing. I don't care if they're busy. They're coming with me to church. So you go big in the invite. You bring them the next Sunday. And the worship isn't unbelievable. It's horrific. Um, the teacher's having a really lousy day. There's no you know, sense of God's presence in the ministry. Anyway, Pete brought one of his friends to church on one of those Sundays and was deeply regretting it. The worship was dry. The preacher was preaching on the Genesis passage about Cain killing his brother Abel, like tough to apply to modern day life, right? Um, and then the, the ministry time was awkward. And, and at the end of the service, they walk home together. And, and Pete's friend, as I said, didn't have a faith background, was battling with all sorts of addictions in his life and was struggling. So Pete plucked up the courage and said, look, how did you find church? and just like bracing himself for the response and the guy said I absolutely loved it it's like wow what did you think of the worship I've never experienced anything like it Pete was thinking neither have I it was horrific um (laughs) what did you think about the talk you know the story about Cain and Abel and the guy said it was as if the preacher was speaking right to me and Pete was like why like have you killed someone like how could that sermon have applied and then this is what his friend responded he's like you know when the guy started talking about you know you you stop being Cain so that you can be able to live properly like I've spent so much of my life Cain like totally high on drugs and I've not been able to make good decisions so this message about not being Cain so that you can be able to live well that was right for me Pete's thinking he didn't say any of that like this he was talking about Cain and Abel not not being Cain so that you can be able to live properly Um, And Pete walked home just feeling great about life. Like when the scriptures are proclaimed, God will always find a way to speak. The word is a lamp um, and the word is a lens. It opens our eyes to see God's created order. About 18 months ago, my father-in-law passed away. Very, very sudden death. He was on holiday in Wales and with my mother-in-law. And we got the phone call. Um, We were obviously totally shocked, traumatized. We kind of picked up the kids from school. We drove down to Pembrokeshire. um, And we spent like 48 hours just as a family. Like turned all the phones off. And we just had 48 hours to process the very beginning stages of, of shock and trauma and grief. And all of us as a family had different ways of responding to to what took place. But I noticed that my brother-in-law would wander around the house kind of in a daze, um, but he was wearing his father, um, Nick's, glasses. Um, And if you try someone else's glasses on, you can't see, right? Because they have, you know, different eyesight to you. But he was just walking around in Nick's glasses. And I remember thinking, that's a bit strange. I must ask him what's going on. So I said to him, Pads, like, I've noticed that you're constantly wearing Nick's glasses. Like, why are you doing that? And he responded with this. He said, I want to see the world through my father's eyes. How amazing is that? Like, I thought that will preach. And 18 months later, here I am, preaching on it. Like, I want to see the world through my father's eyes. This is what scripture does. It opens our eyes to see the world as God sees the world. So every time we open up the scriptures, we've got the word of God. We've got the spirit of God. There's a guarantee that there'll be an explosion of light, an explosion of life, that we're going to begin to see the world as God sees the world.
So I want to talk briefly about worldviews. Um, so I'm borrowing this from the world of psychology, neuro-linguistic programming. Um, it highlights the fact that there's a gap between our perceptions and reality itself. So all around us right now, there are three billion bits of data. That's way too much data for you to actually process. So we begin a process of kind of filtering down the data. So there's an awareness of the person on your right and the person on your left. You're aware of what they're wearing. You're aware of someone behind you breathing heavily and that feels a bit weird. Um, You're aware of what's on the screen. You're aware of what I'm looking like. Some of you are thinking, Pete's lost a bit of weight. He's looking fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, You're aware of like a car going past on Pentonville Road. There's so much data. It's too much data. So you begin to filter it. So these three billion bits of data, they go through your senses. Um, What you can taste and touch and feel and smell and hear. And then that data gets sent to your brain where it filters the information. We do three things. We generalize, we delete, and we distort. So generalize, let me give an example of this. If you've been bitten recently by a dog and you're walking to work, I can guarantee you, you're going to notice every single dog on your way to work, right? Because you've made a generalization that dogs bite, and when dogs bite, it hurts. You don't want it to happen again. So you're aware of every single dog on your way to work. We make these generalizations in nanoseconds because they help us process information fast. Um, For those that haven't been bitten by a dog, congratulations. When you walk to work, you're probably not going to notice any of the dogs. It's unnecessary information. So you just delete it. So you're walking to work, generalize, delete. And and you're just beginning to filter the information. The third thing is you distort information. You manipulate information to get the outcome that you desire. So imagine the scenario, you're walking through your local park. It's a summer's day, midday, let's say. And you hear what sounds like gunshots. No one wants to hear gunshots in their local park um, in the middle of the summer, in the middle of the day. So you think, oh, well, that must be fireworks. How fantastic, a firework display in the middle of you know, July, in the middle of the summer. That's very odd, but London is quite an odd place. Fantastic fireworks. I love fireworks. And you begin to manipulate the information because you don't want to hear the sound of gunshots in your local park in the middle of the day. We do all of this super, super fast. We generalize, delete, distort. Generalize, delete, distort until you land at your perception, which is around 100 bits of data. So what begins with 3 billion bits of data is narrowed down to 100 bits of data. And that's why when there's a crime scene, the police want more than one eyewitness, right? Because one eyewitness might have 100 bits of data. But that wasn't reality. That was their perception of reality. They want as many eyewitnesses so they can get a clearer sort of like view of what actually took place. Now let's relate this to how we read the scriptures. Um, So we start with the the scriptures themselves. It passes through our senses as we're reading. What do we see? What do we hear in the text? How does it make us feel? All of that stuff. It then goes through these filters. And because we bring to the text a pre-existing worldview, and let's just name the fact that we swim. You know, it's the air we breathe, the waters we swim in the surrounding culture of liberalism and rationalism and consumerism and, and dot, dot, dot. You know, we bring to the text a pre-existing worldview and we generalize, delete, distort. Like generalize. We just make these generalizations about scripture. There's stuff we don't understand. Delete, delete, delete. Oh, I don't know if that fits. Let me manipulate the data so it fits the outcome I desire. And you end up with your perceived biblical reality. In other words, your interpretation of reality. It looks something like this. You're reading the scriptures. 
Generalize, delete, distort, generalize, delete, distort. And what do you find in the text? I want everyone to look at the screen. What do you find in the text when you generalize, delete, distort? This is what you find. Lovely, lovely. The word becomes a mirror. You find yourself in the text. You have a pre-existing worldview. You know the outcome you want. So you look in the text. You generalize, delete, distort. You find the outcome you already believe in. And then it just affirms your worldview. Right? This is how the Bible's been used historically to justify the apartheid regime, the Holocaust and what was happening in Nazi Germany, to defend slavery and the Crusades, all sorts of evils. People looked into the text, they bought a pre-existing worldview, they found their worldview affirmed in the text and they're like, brilliant, there I am, fantastic, let's crack on. Is there another way to read the text? There has to be another way, a better way to read the text. We do this with the person of Jesus all the time, by the way. If you look through the history of art when it comes to the person of Jesus and you look across different cultures, you'll find that each culture created Jesus in their own image. So we read the Gospels, we generalize, delete, distort. I don't like his teaching on money. Oh, I'm not sure about his teaching on sex. This idea about judgment, like take the log out of your own eye before you take the, the speck out of somebody else's eye. No, I don't like that. I love judging people. It feels really good to judge people. I'm going to change the world by judging people. And we generalize, delete, distort until we have a Jesus that's basically a slightly better version of ourselves, right? A Jesus that if he was alive right now, walking the earth in his physical body, he'd probably live in King's Cross because it's the best part of you know, London. Um, he would probably share your political views. He would drink in the coffee shops where you drink. He'd be angry at the stuff that makes you angry. He'd be passionate about the stuff that makes you passionate. So we basically create Jesus in our own image. This is what Voltaire said. In the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. So what we do is we basically create Jesus in our own image, and we begin to worship that Jesus. So we're basically elevating ourselves to the status of divine and then worshiping ourselves. It's called idolatry, by the way. C.S. Lewis said, idols always break the hearts of their worshippers. If you worship a Jesus created in your own image, it will break your heart. And this is why so many parts of the Western church have done this and they've lost a sense of the power of God. Is there a better way to read the text? Tough crowd. Yes, there is a better way to read the text. There's a better way to read the text. Um, the better way to read the text is to come to the scriptures not with a worldview, but for a worldview. Not with a kind of pre-existing worldview, looking for it just to affirm what you already believe, but to say basically, God, would you reframe, renew my mind, help me see the world as you see the world. So we come to the text for a worldview, to receive a worldview, not just to have our worldview reflected. So I want to look at the worldview of Eden, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, because the Bible starts with the story, and this story is so profound, so important, because it is like a pair of spectacles that help us see and understand the rest of scriptures and creation at large. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, they're perhaps some of the most misunderstood parts of scripture. And the reason is because we bring a pre-existing worldview. And for us here, we bring basically a scientific, rationalistic worldview to the text of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We generalize, delete, distort. And we're like, really? That doesn't seem in sync with you know, Darwin's theory of evolution. And that doesn't seem to be in sync with the Big Bang. It doesn't actually make any sense. And we ignore it. But Genesis 1, 2, and 3 was written around the 5th or 6th century B.C. 
This is hundreds of years before the Enlightenment, before the genre of scientific writings as we know it today. So before they had scientific writings, in the ancient world they had stories that helped the ancient world understand the nature of God, the nature of humanity, and how we're to live in the world. And the Hebrew creation story is utterly profound. It is unrivaled in the ancient world. If you compare it with the other creation stories, and Tyler in week two did this. He compared it with the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation account. You can compare it with the Canaanite myth of Baal or the Egyptian creation accounts. The Hebrew account just stands unparalleled. Can I give you three reasons why? Number, thank you so much. I love, I love a bit of sort of energy in the room. So number one, um, the, the Hebrew God creates out of the overflow of his love. Like we just read it and it's like, mm, don't really understand, move on. Um, in the ancient world, that's utterly profound. All these other creation stories in the ancient Near East, they involve gods fighting one another and the gods would create the world out of the overflow of their hate. Right, um, So to have a creation story where there's no warfare, God just speaks and things come into existence and he creates out of the overflow of love. In the ancient world, they'd have read that and thought, there's no other story like this. This is incredible. So God creates out of the overflow of love. Number two, he creates humanity to be his friends. Again, in all the other creation accounts, um, humanity is created to be the slaves to the divine realm. So if you look at the Greco-Roman world, they were all terrified about the Roman or Greek pantheon of gods and trying to appease these different deities. And, And the Hebrew creation account is so different. Like God creates out of the overflow of love. He creates humanity in his image and likeness and says, I want to be friends. So let's walk around in the cool of the day in this garden of abundance and garden of delight. That is unbelievable. What an amazing story. We're invited to rule and reign, not to be slaves, to rule and reign with God himself. Um, What an amazing opening story. Here's the third thing. Humans were created to be fully alive and enjoy freedom. Fully alive and enjoy freedom. Um, Our modern worldviews are obsessed with freedom. Like it's all we talk about. We're, we're trying to experience a greater measure of freedom. And there's different pathways to freedom. Let me tell you about the Judeo-Christian worldview that comes from this text. Um, this is what the Bible has to say about human flourishing and about freedom. It's a more beautiful vision than anything on offer in the surrounding culture. I believe that. Um, so to explain it, I want to talk about the principle of first mention. John mentioned this last Sunday. Um, This is a hermeneutical principle. In other words, it helps you understand the text, the scriptures. Um, The principle goes something like this. If you want to understand what a word means, go to the first place in scripture that word is ever used, and that first use will dictate the meaning. So if we apply it to the word freedom, what does the Bible have to say about human flourishing and freedom? And and this is the answer. In Genesis chapter 2, you've got this. Verse 15, 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free. When you notice the context, created out of the overflow of love to be God's friends in this garden of abundance. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So the modern worldview basically says if you want to taste freedom, you need to overcome all obstacles, all boundaries. 
um, you need to overcome all authority structures. And the biblical story offers something completely different. If you want to taste freedom, here's what freedom looks like. It's living in the presence of God with his boundaries in place. That's the Judeo-Christian worldview when it comes to the subject of freedom. Freedom is found in the presence of God with his boundaries in place. So when the serpent comes along and says, if you eat that fruit, you won't die. No, you will be like God. By the way, they were already like God, made in his image and likeness. The serpent was basically saying, you can become God's rival, not his servant, his, his rival. You can be king. If you eat this fruit, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. They already knew good and evil. Because God had made it clear. You can eat any fruit. Don't eat that fruit. That's evil. Anything else, that's good. But the serpent is basically saying, if you eat this fruit, your eyes will be open. And you can define good and evil for yourself. You can be king. And you can create your own vision for human flourishing. And this is what we've been doing as humanity since the garden. Basically saying, God, no, I'd rather not be a servant in your kingdom. I'd rather be king in my own kingdom. I'd rather define what's right and wrong. I'd rather create a vision for human flourishing that revolves around me and it creates slavery and it creates so much pain. The Bible begins with a story of human flourishing. Freedom is found in the presence of God living according to his principles. Here's the summary. Freedom comes through submission. Generalize, delete, distort. Surely not. Generalize, delete, distort. Freedom comes through submission to God. That's how the Bible opens up, right? Let me give you some examples. Philippians chapter 1. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. It's, it's the most incredible text. And I know we did a teaching series in the summer when B and I were on sabbatical. Um, it's been known as the epistle of joy because Paul's constantly talking about joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. He talks about peace, this peace that passes all understanding that will guard your hearts and minds in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. He talks about contentment. He says, I found the key to contentment. This is a letter basically about human flourishing. It's a letter about freedom. And Paul, from verse 1, outlines the pathway to freedom. Are you ready? He says, Paul and Timothy, those are the authors, servants of Christ Jesus. Greek word for servants, doulos, could be translated slave. Paul basically says, here's how you experience joy, contentment, peace that passes all understanding. You can imagine the church in Philippi, yes, yes, through submission. Oh, Like freedom is found through submission. Paul, when he writes this letter, the context is he's writing from prison in Rome. He constantly refers to the fact that he's in chains. So outwardly, you're thinking he cannot be experiencing joy. He's in prison. He's in chains. He cannot be experiencing contentment and a peace that passes understanding. He says, you don't get it. This isn't about the external. When you submit yourself to Jesus, that is the pathway to human flourishing. Like mind-blowing. Let me read you Paul's vision for human flourishing in the context of relationships. This is Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. He says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, submit to one another out of your submission to Christ. The Greek word for submission, hupotasso, everybody say hupotasso. Felt great, didn't it? So hupo means underneath, tasso is to order. So order yourself Underneath, put others first, basically. So he starts with this. Um, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Anxiety in the room, generalize, delete, distort, generalize, delete, distort. Does it really actually say that? Um, Yes, it does. And it's utterly stunning. Wives, place yourself beneath, order above your husbands. 
right? Put their needs first. That's how you live if you want to flourish in marriage, right? Incredible vision. But notice what he then says. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is all about mutual submission. So he says to the husbands, hey, husbands, submit, hupotasso, to your wives. Order yourselves beneath. Like, In the first century, when the wives were the possession of their husbands, right? For Paul to come along and say to the husbands, submit, order yourself beneath your wife. That's revolutionary. That is a revolution. It's called the kingdom of God, by the way. This is a vision for human flourishing in the context of relationships. He goes on, he says, children, obey mum and dad. That's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Honor mum and dad. And then he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. In other words, parents, because this is all about mutual submission, um, submit to your kids. Like, what? Like, in the first century, for Paul to come along and say, hey, um, parents, you need, hupotasso, you need to submit to your children, that would have created outrage. Like, what are you talking about? This is a revolution. Quite right. It's called the kingdom of God. Um, He then says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. Now, let me just name this, that this isn't Paul justifying slavery. The intellectual... Um, seeds that led to the abolition of slavery under Wesley and Wilberforce and these great, great abolitionists. And I know there's so much more to do, but the intellectual seeds are all found in the writings of the Apostle Paul, um, who gave his time and energy to liberating slaves. So this isn't justifying slavery, but Paul is basically saying when slavery is the norm, like it was in the first century, here's how to flourish in that dynamic. Slaves, submit to your masters. And everyone's like, yeah, we know that. And then he basically says, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. So he says to masters, submit to your slaves. Order them above. Say what? Like this is a revolution. It's called the kingdom of God. The message is abundantly clear. If you want freedom, if, if you want fullness of life, if you want human flourishing, the pathway, at least biblically, is through submission. Submission to God and his principles for living. Let's talk about Jesus. Good to talk about Jesus, isn't it? Um, what would be the motto that drives the ministry of Jesus? Let me just sort of name a couple. Let's try these on for size. He says, I only do what I see my father doing. I only do what I see my father doing. That's submission, right? So I only speak the words that he gives me to speak. Wow, that's submission. How about this one? He says, my food, in other words, what sustains me, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. In other words, this is what sustains me. I submit myself to the will of my Father in heaven. We have to say that Jesus lived the most fully human life, fully alive, brimming with the Spirit, and he found freedom through submission. And then you journey with Jesus towards the cross. And in the run up to the cross, which is the climactic moment of his ministry, he utters seven words that change everything. These seven words, without these seven words, there would be no cross. Without these seven words, no resurrection. Without these seven words, no new creation. Without these seven words, no church. Without these seven words, none of the salvation and the fullness of life that we've experienced in Christ. None of that without these seven words. Do you want to know what the seven words are? I want more from that. I want more. I'm, I, if, if I could, I'd have had a Coldplay track just underneath as I was like building to this climactic moment. Do you want the seven words? And everyone would be like, yes. Okay, here's the seven words. Not my will be done, but yours. Not my will be done 
but yours. He says it three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like, God, is there any other way? Like, does, does it have to involve the agony of crucifixion? And yet, not my will be done, but yours. And because of those seven words, he journeys to the cross and our sins are forgiven. And because of those seven words, um, he dies, he rises again, the firstborn of the new creation and invites us to follow in his way. He ascends to the Father, the Spirit is poured out, the church is birthed. 2,000 years later, we're gathered here in a church in King's Cross because Jesus uttered seven words three times. Not my will be done, but yours. That's submission, right? Freedom found through submission. How do we smash the mirror? You know, when we read the scripture, we find ourselves in the text and we elevate ourselves to the status of divine and worship ourselves. It's idolatry. How do we smash the idol? How do we smash the mirror? Um, And the answer is we declare the same seven words. Not my will be done, but yours. We come to Jesus and we say, like my vision for human flourishing, I just put that to one side. Not my will be done, but yours. You know, Jesus said, he said, the kingdom of God, this new creation, this new order, it's at hand right now, therefore repent. In other words, turn around from all these other competing visions for human flourishing. In the first century, you had the zealots. They wanted to fight their way to freedom. You had the Essenes that wanted to withdraw into the wilderness and be holy together, thinking that would bring freedom. You had the Pharisees, the religious tribe. They were like, let's be obedient to the Torah. If we can be really obedient to the scriptures, that's how we'll find freedom. Um, You had the Sadducees. They were trying to assimilate, sort of like say to Rome, we'll scratch your back, you scratch our back. We can compromise our way to freedom. And Jesus says, none of them will work. Are they working? No, none of them will work. Repent, turn around. There's a different vision for human flourishing, repent. He also said, if you want to come and follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross daily. In other words, die to self and start living for Christ. That's the pathway to God's vision for human flourishing. God's vision begins when we say, not my will be done, but yours. So when we smash the mirror, the word becomes a window. The word becomes a window. This is what Tyler said in week two, quoting Karl Barth, that as you read the scriptures in the scriptures, you see like through this window into God's new creation that's been brought about through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. You begin to see this new order, this new realm. It's called the kingdom of God. But more than that, as you read the scriptures, you receive the invite to step through the window into this new realm, this new way of being human. How do we step through the window? I want you to imagine this, actually having to climb down and step through a window. You're bending down, that submission, right? That surrender. You're bending down, saying, not my will be done, but yours. Because in this new reality, there's only one king, and it's not you. And there's only one vision for human flourishing, and it isn't yours. It's his. We climb through the window when we say, not my will be done, but yours. Will it feel like death? You betcha. If you want to come and follow me, you've got to take up your cross daily. Die to self and chase after Jesus. Let's try and apply this. John said this last week, that we've got to do the hard work of wrestling with the scriptures. There's revelation, what the Bible says. There's interpretation, what does the Bible actually mean? And there's application. What do we do with that information in the 21st century? Very different context to the Greco-Roman world in which a chunk of this was, was written. There's revelation, there's interpretation, there's application. How do we submit and say, not my will be done, but yours? The answer is, we need to have some conversations. And there's three ingredients in those conversations. There's the word of God. The spirit of God, that's a great combination, right? There'll be an explosion of light and an explosion of life. And there'll be the family of God. 
right? Remember I said at, at a crime scene, you need lots of eyewitnesses because they see different things. We're part of a family. We don't need to interpret this on our own. We're in a family. Um, the word of God, the spirit of God, the family of God, and we're going to have some conversations in 2020 um, on some of the subjects that we've not really hosted conversations on at KXE about how do we really care for and steward creation. Ethics around the beginning and end of life. Um, sexuality and gender and race. And for many of these subjects, we've been silent. And I want to explain, at least in part, why we've been silent. There's actually multiple reasons why we've been silent. But let me name the main one. Um, fear. Fear. And I need to own that actually a lot of it is because I've been afraid. I've been afraid. I've seen how these conversations have played out in the surrounding culture. And it's basically been done through identity politics, which by definition is tribal and adversarial. You choose your tribe and you begin to fight. And, and there's this idea that will overcome oppression by creating greater division and it's actually causing more pain. And I've not wanted to threaten what is happening here at KXC, something totally, totally beautiful, a family, a deep love and respect, a community of grace has been formed and I've not wanted to threaten that with conversations that might tear it apart um, and I just want to own up to the fact that we haven't spoken in because of fear and, and I want you to know I repent I repent of allowing fear to actually cause us to be silent because I know that our silence has created insecurity that our silence has meant that some people have walked in and asked the question can I belong here like am I welcome in this place um, I've wanted to be a spiritual father here at KXE and you can't be a spiritual father when you're silent. And I want you to know I'm really sorry. I thought I was serving what is happening in this community, but I was abdicating responsibility because a lot of people have been asking big, big questions and we've not engaged. We've had a vision for discipleship of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus and doing the stuff that Jesus did. Um, and yet we've not spoken into some of the key, key issues of discipleship in our time. And as the, the spiritual like father figure in this place, I want to say I'm really sorry. I repent. Like I turn around, I'm not going to be silent because you can't be a spiritual father if you're silent. So we're going to have some conversations um, in 2020. Um, but before we have those conversations, I want to lay out some ground rules for the conversations. Okay, just two. Number one, we're having these conversations as family, not to create family. We are already family, right? So this isn't a conversation to somehow get agreement so that we can sort of like have family. Um, G, Paul said, um, Galatians 3, that in Christ there's no longer the division between Jew and Gentile and slave and free and male and female. We are one in Christ, right? Ephesians 2, that Christ has broken down the dividing walls of hostility and the surrounding culture is trying to build up those walls, but Christ has broken them down so we can have these conversations not to create family, but because we are already one in Christ and what unites us is infinitely greater than what divides us. We're having these conversations as family, a family that loves one another and wants to learn from one another. Here's the second thing. We're having these conversations built on the foundation that God's posture towards humanity is radical hospitality. That God's posture towards humanity, you and me, is radical hospitality. So our posture towards everyone is radical hospitality. And I've been trying to find words to articulate my heart, what I believe is the heart of scripture on this. And this is insufficient, but this is my best attempt to answer the question, who's welcome? 
at Kirksey because genuinely it breaks my heart that people walk in the door and underneath as we're worshipping God and teaching the scriptures and inviting the spirit, underneath what's raging in some people's minds is can I belong here? Am I actually welcome? That breaks my heart and I'm sorry for my silence. This is the answer to the question, who's welcome at Kirksey? The Christian foundation for hospitality and community is grace. We welcome people not on the basis of belief, race, sexual orientation or social standing, but on the simple fact that we're all made in the image of God and are all his beloved children. And Jesus died for all of us, not some of us. His arms on the cross were stretched wide to welcome home all sons and daughters that are willing to turn towards him. Jesus defines one neighbor, therefore, not as the person nearest you, but also as the person intellectually, geographically, politically, and socially furthest from you. And if it's good enough for Jesus, then it's good enough for us. Our welcome at KXC therefore extends to those who disagree with how we teach and interpret the scriptures and to those who disagree with the scriptures themselves. For the theologically conservative in the room, you're welcome here. Please know this, we believe all of the above on the basis of scripture, our highest authority. We will attempt to faithfully teach the scriptures and submit to the scriptures in all things. To the theologically progressive in the room, you're welcome here. Please know this, our definition for hospitality is not based on tolerance, but on the sacrificial love of Jesus. Our breadth, therefore, extends not to the limits of our tolerance, but to the limits of our love, which are ever-increasing as we become like him. Despite what the culture suggests, we believe you don't need to agree with people to respect them. Quite the opposite, respect creates the humility for learning, and learning creates the possibility for growth. So welcome. Regardless of age, race, sexual orientation, employment status, social status and housing status, you are welcome. Regardless of upbringing, education, political views, you are welcome. You are welcome on the basis of Jesus, the one who we worship today and the one who lived, died and rose again so that strangers could become family and enemies could become friends. He's the head of this church. He's the one that ultimately says welcome here today. So welcome. I believe this is the message of the cross, that the arms stretched out on the cross communicate an embrace to everyone, to all, to experience a grace that you could never really fully comprehend. It's just too good to fully get your head around. So the cross communicates welcome, but it, it's more than that. Because Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. Like this new creation, it's breaking out all around you. Like if you want to come and follow after me, if you want to climb out the window, then you need to know you're welcome, but the way through the window is not my will be done, but yours. Everybody welcome, everybody welcome. And Jesus says, okay, brilliant. If you want to climb through the window, repent. If you want to climb through the window, you've got to die to self. Because on the other side of the window, there's only one king. His name is Jesus. He lived, he died, he rose again so that we could enjoy this wide open space of God's salvation. Um, Practically, I want to close with a few reflections. We've been using this metaphor of, of stepping outside of the window. And yet we know that we're ministers of God's new creation in the midst of the old. Like Paul would say in Philippians that we're citizens of heaven. Our identity, our purpose, our hope is with him. And yet we walk this out in the context of London. 
in the context of King's Cross or wherever you live. So how do we live in this overlap of the ages as ministers of the new creation in the midst of the old? Um, Three quick thoughts. I'll land with this then. How do we use scripture as a guide? Number one, scripture is a lamp. Scripture scripture is a limiter. Scripture is a lamp. Scripture is a lifeline. Um, Scripture is a limiter. Um, Scripture enables us to push back darkness. When you experience temptation, and there's temptation all around, what do you need in the moment of temptation? The answer is you need strength. Um, And more often than not, your strength will not be enough if the temptation is really, really intense. What you need is the word of God. When God speaks, it says in scripture that his word never returns to him empty. When he speaks, there's a power released to accomplish what the word has spoken. So when you're in a moment of temptation and you turn to scripture, it's not just an idea. There's a power released to accomplish that word, right? So when Jesus is in the wilderness and the enemy is going after him, trying to drag him down, trying to undermine his sonship that was affirmed at his baptism. What does Jesus say when the enemy goes after him? Every single time he says, it is written. It is written. Jesus devoured the scriptures so he could push back the darkness. On one of the occasions he said, it is written that man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, when you read the scriptures, you find strength to say no to temptation and to push back darkness. In Ephesians 6, when it mentions the armor of the Lord and the sword of the spirit, in other words, the scriptures, it's the only offensive weapon, right? Everything else is about defense and yet the scripture enables us to push forward and push back the darkness. I think there's probably some in the room you're going through temptation and you're not sure if you've got the strength to withstand it. And I want to ask the simple question, are you devouring the scriptures? Like, is there a moment in that temptation when you can say, it is written, this will enable you to push back darkness. Secondly, then, the scripture as a lamp, it releases light. There will be an explosion of light. C.S. Lewis said this, I believe in Christianity, in other words, the truth revealed in scripture, um, as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Like as I read the scriptures, I understand everything because the word is a lamp. Oxford University, I love this. The motto of Oxford University is Dominus Illuminate Mea. The Lord is my light. It was founded hundreds of years ago by a group of monks with one purpose, to read the scriptures. Because they believed that the scriptures were a lamp unto their feet. And they wanted to make their way through the darkness and be led by the light. So they started studying the scriptures. If you go to a graduation ceremony at Oxford University today, there's a tradition where the theology graduates, the doctors of divinity, they lead the procession. It's like an enactment of the motto that Dominus Illuminato Mea, the Lord is my light. These guys, their learning, which is based on scriptures, these guys lead the way. They lead our learning. Here's some of the statements that Oxford have made about the study of the scriptures over the years. They describe theology as the queen of the sciences. That it's the sum of learning that unites all disciplines. It's the engine that's driven science and the humanities. One Oxford theologian said, without the scriptures, we'd still be in the dark ages. Because hundreds of years ago, some monks got together in Oxford and in Cambridge and most of the modern universities were monks getting together, believing that the word is a lamp unto our feet. And it guided learning. And and it brought so much life. When we study the scriptures, we find a lamp. You know, Oxford University, now they would laugh at this, right? And yet they still have the ceremony 
where the theology graduates lead the way. They still have the motto. We live at a time when people want to eat the fruit of the Judeo-Christian worldview. They just want to chop down the tree. They want the light. They just want to throw away the torch or get rid of the lamp. They don't realize that actually it's the lamp that releases the light. As you immerse yourself in the scriptures, you're going to experience light. Final thing, scripture as a lifeline. This is um, Romans 15. Paul says this, for everything that was written, everything that we have in scripture was written um, to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So when you go through tough times, yeah, and you need a lifeline, like don't turn to mum and dad, or maybe turn to them, um, but turn to the scriptures. Like don't turn to your boss first or your best friend first. Like turn to the scriptures. The scriptures are a lifeline. You're going to learn endurance. You're going to find encouragement. In other words, these, these words are going to put courage into the core of your being. They're going to give you hope that there is light at the end of this tunnel, that there is a new creation that is dawning. It's breaking in upon us. So let me close with one story of a guy called Hein Pham. Now, in the 1970s, Ravi Zacharias, a famous preacher, was preaching in Vietnam before the communist regime kicked in. And he used an interpreter as part of his preaching. The interpreter was Hein Pham. And after their preaching tours, um, Ravi Zacharias never heard of Hein Pham again. Went 17 years without any contact, um, contact and was always wondering, I wonder what happened to that interpreter I used to work with. After 17 years, he gets a phone call from Hein Pham. And Hein Pham explains the story of what actually took place. So after the, the preaching tours, eventually the communist regime kicked in and they captured Hein Pham and they put him in prison. They brutally, brutally tortured him because they believed that he was aiding the Americans um, and betraying the communist regime. Um, so he was in this concentration camp. He went through an intense form of brainwashing. They tried to stamp out his Christian faith and feed him Marxist ideology. That happened for years. Brutal, brutal torture, brainwashing, undermining of his faith. And after years of that, Heinfam had nothing left in the tank. He just couldn't fight it anymore. And one day he basically said, God, I can't do it anymore. I can't follow you anymore. I, I'm not even sure I believe you're true. Um, and on that day, he decided that he would stop praying. The next day, the first day that he hadn't turned heavenwards and lifted his, his heart to God, he was doing one of his jobs. His job was to clean out the latrines, the toilets, like literally excrement, urine everywhere, and he'd have to clean it all up. And as he was cleaning up the latrines, he found a piece of toilet paper with a bit of English text on it. It had excrement, urine, but he, he, he picked it up, he folded it away, took it back to his cell. And that night when everyone was asleep, he opened it up, he cleaned cleaned it and he started reading and this is what he read these incredible words from Romans chapter 8 and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him those who've been called according to his purpose for I'm convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord like how amazing the day you've given up on your faith. You're reading this thing of like, I've given up on you, God, but you haven't given up on me. Nothing could separate me from your love. What an amazing moment. The next day you went to clean out the toilets. 
He basically found more bits of toilet paper with text on. He took them back to his cell. The next day, the same thing. Basically realized that the prison guards were using the scriptures to wipe their backsides. And every day he'd collect the text, wipe off the excrement and start reading. Start feeding on the scriptures, like immersing himself in the text. And 17 years after being the interpreter for Ravi Zacharias, he picks up the phone and says, hey, Ravi. He tells the story and Ravi says, what got you through? He said, scriptures were a lifeline for me. The scriptures were a lifeline for me. Like when you're going through the hard time, you need to know that if you feed on these scriptures, you will find courage, you'll find resilience, endurance. They will give you hope. The last 40 minutes, basically a summary would be, read the scriptures. I could have saved you 40 minutes, but it felt better this way. It felt better this way. That the scriptures are a limiter that enable you to push back darkness. The scriptures are a lamp. They, they release so much light. The scriptures are a lifeline. And as you feast on the scriptures, as you follow the scriptures, as you come to the text and say, God, seven words, here they are. It's going to feel like death. Not my will be done, but yours. You're going to climb through a window into a whole new world. And that new world is called the kingdom of God.